We're in the middle of a series. We're actually wrapping up a series today called Simply Jesus. And um, just so you know, if you're new to our church, one of the reasons we, we, we talk about Jesus is because it's really important. He's an important figure in the life of Christianity, not just because he's a figurehead or he's part of the Trinity. It's because he left heaven and lived on earth and he face some of the things that you and I face. And like the Bible says, he was tempted in all points yet without sin, which means he knows what you're going through right now. Like he knows and he felt it. And he taught us a lot while he was on this earth. And so every year we take one series, one sermon series, we teach in sermon series format, which means I take a series of thought and then I have ADD and we have to switch. But like I, like I focus one whole series on Jesus because we need to know who he was, what he did, and why it matters to us. By the way, most religions in the world teach about some God in heaven somewhere. Christianity is the only religion, the only following, the only belief system that believes that God came to earth and actually lived with his creation. And then not only that, didn't just teach about having heaven one day, he taught about having heaven now. So I'm just telling you, Jesus is important. And so we've been walking through last well, week one, we talked about Jesus' greatest parable. We talked about the parable of the prodigal sons. I don't call it the prodigal son because there was two lost boys. Spoiler alert. Go back and check it out. Week one, YouTube, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast. It's everywhere. But week two, last week, we talked about Jesus' greatest offense where Jesus maybe said maybe the greatest offensive statement where he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he offended everybody, including Christians at that time, because he was like, wow, thank you, Jesus, for that. Uh, I don't know what that means. And uh, we talked about last week how it really mattered because he was so great at finding who were the real followers, like who are the real committed people. So I, I thought it was pretty good. I preached it, but I guess I'm biased. But this week, we're going to talk about what I would say would be Jesus' greatest sermon. I, I would argue to say the greatest sermon ever preached. So I got it kind of easy today. I'm going to re-preach his sermon. I'm just going to teach you what Jesus taught them in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, or we call it, the, if you're from church, the Beatitudes. How many of y'all ever heard it called the Beatitudes? And, uh, and it's found in Matthew chapter 5. So let me give you some context before we put it up on the screens. Context is Jesus has not started his ministry yet. This is kind of the beginning and the birthplace of his ministry. He's just gone through temptation with the, with the devil and he got baptized. And he has this moment where he starts ministry, he's starting to gather his disciples and he's starting to see a following that comes around him. So he gets to this mountain. The reason they call it the Sermon on the Mount, spoiler alert, because he's preaching on a mountain. That's why they call it that. So he's preaching and he starts to teach what I would say is the greatest sermon ever preached. But he starts with a poem on happiness. And we're going to read about it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. And it says this. Uh, it, it's really, this is important because this is the first time Jesus can address what it's like to be a follower of him. Does that make sense? Like, he's standing in front of you and me, and he's saying, this is, this is his inaugural address. This is his kingdom mandate. If you're going to be a part of the kingdom, this is how it works. And he says, happy people, blessed, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This amazing start, this amazing intro to the greatest sermon ever preached, primarily focused on what it's like to have true happiness in your 
life. And with that as our backdrop, let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord. Thank you that today, God, you have something to speak to us today. Um, We all come in with preconceived notions of how we should be. And I'm thankful that you address how we should be. You address us with how we, we ought to be under you. And that's always comes with sacrifice. That always comes with adjustment. That always comes with, with clarity. So thank you for that. This message, thank you for this time. My notes are not enough, so I need you, Holy Spirit, to make them enough for people to understand them, to see them, and to know their next step. In Jesus' name, we pray. And everybody said? Amen, amen, amen. How many of y'all have ever, um, I have two refrigerators in our house. I have the one in our kitchen, and then I have one in our garage. And the garage is primarily like the overflow, and if you go to Costco. So I got five kids, so I have to buy a lot of food. Otherwise, we won't make it from week to week. So I have to have another set of refrigerator outside, and, and, and so I, I got it. How many of y'all have like, a, like an extra fridge outside? Y'all have that kind of, okay, all right, so y'all, y'all know kind of my flow. Well, one, one, I remember one day we were, uh, several months back, I went out to my garage, and I realized that my... Uh, refrigerator was when I opened it up and the lights were off and I realized it was off. Now, how many of y'all would have a panic moment like I did? I'm like, oh no. So I start, what do you start doing when the fridge is off? What do you start doing? You start touching all the things and feeling it. Is it what? Is it, is it warm? Is it not cool anymore? You go to the freezer and your favorite ice cream, Chunky Monkey, is now soup and you're mad and you know, you're just looking at everything and I was so frustrated and I realized, ah man, you know, the the, the, the power had went out. And so I'm like, okay. So I went to the back and I, I saw that the plug, the GFI plug has a little button on it. You know what I mean? And if it pops, it turns off. It kind of protects it from surges and whatnot. And so I saw it. So I took the plug out. I pushed the button. It went click. You know, everybody say on count three, say click. One, two, three. Click. That's what it sounded like-ish. And so I put it in. Click. Fridge turned on. All was well. So I'm like, you know what? I am pretty good. You know, you guys ever... Anybody ever do something pretty simple, but you just really take a moment to pat yourself on the back? Anybody? I do that pretty regularly. I'm like, I put gas in the car. You're welcome. My wife's like, what, you want a cookie? You're supposed to do that. And encourage myself in the Lord. So a few days go by, and I walk up to the fridge and open up my fridge to get myself a sparkling water, pull it open, and guess what happens? Fridge is off. And I'm like, what is going on? This 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 is messed up. So I look to the back, and what I see is the plug's popped again. So I push the pop push it back in, things lights back up. I walk inside, my wife's in there. She goes, you fixed the, fix the fridge? I said, you best believe it. I two men tailored that thing. You know what I mean? Like, I tell you what, I just walked out with my belt, you know, and just said, I fixed it for you, girl. Don't worry. Give me a little kiss, you know, something. You know, you know, you know how you do it. So a few days go by and I get a phone call at my office. My wife says, fridge is broken. Guess you didn't fix it, huh? I was like, oh. You didn't have to say it like that. You know what I mean? Guys, didn't our wife say a little, you know, a little more, like a little just like, say with a little more love. You know what I mean? A little more like, you know, just say, say a little more love. So I was a little sensitive. I was like, don't worry, I'll come home. I'm going to fix it. I did that on purpose. I'm testing something. So I came home and I looked at it and I pushed the button and turned it on. Next day it popped. So I called my brother-in-law. He's an electrician, like a professional, like an actual electrician, not one, you know, you play on television. I'm like, he's an actual electrician. So I'm like, hey, what's going on? He goes, you know what? The, the GFI, we have that happen a lot. If you just change it out, change out the GFI, it'll fix it. I said, no problem. So I turned off all the power and I fixed it. You'll be happy to know that your pastor knows how to do more than just read the Bible. I changed the GFI plug and I didn't kill myself, which is honestly a win. Because when you're dealing with electricity, how many of y'all know, has anybody ever been zapped before by, you know, anybody's zapped by a plug? It don't feel good. You know, you're like, whoa, there's some brain cells. So it just <laughs> changed it out. I find it interesting though. Um, the reason I tell this story is because what, what's interesting is I didn't fix 
the refrigerator issue until I got to the root problem of the power. And most people with happiness, we have the same issue. You and I like to pop the button and it might fix it for temporary purposes for just a moment, but eventually it shuts off again and you're back down in anxiety, you're back down in fear, you're back down in sadness, you're back down in depression. And then what you'll do is you'll medicate it you put it by pushing the button. Or you'll, we, we, maybe we do it with like entertainment. We'll watch enough Netflix documentaries or comedian specials and that'll push the button. And then you'll, you'll, or you'll go find a friend. I know people who right now struggle with happiness and they just get more and more people around them and throw more and more parties. And what's funny is the moment that person's gone, the button pops and you're back into sadness again. And the issue is not necessarily what we think it is. You and I, in order to fix our happiness, we got to get to the root problem. And for me, it was changing the plug. And for us, Jesus is saying, it's not all those things you think it is. In fact, in the kingdom, the most happy people in the world. And then he gives this working, almost manifesto, almost prescription on how to actually fix it. Now, if Jesus was talking to unhappy people in his time, how many of y'all think we have a lot more unhappy people in our time? Have you watched the news recently? Is anybody else depressed every time you turned on the news? Like where you're like, wow, thanks five minutes of the worst things happening in the world. Right? In fact, I read a statistic. It said nearly 7 million people in the U.S. are affected by generalized anxiety disorder. I'm like, well, I know one of them because it's me. About 6 million people struggle with panic disorder, and they're seeing in every statistical category that you can research and get in information on the sharpest increase in human history. So we, not, we don't have a happiness epidemic. We have a human epidemic. Like there's something fundamentally wrong inside of our souls because we can't seem to figure it out. We keep pushing the button that gives us temporary fixes on everything but we don't actually get to the root of the problem. Jesus even addresses it in his poem to start the sermon. He says, blessed are the, blessed, the word blessed there is makuros. It actually means to have supreme happiness or joy that you and I cannot actually understand. Happiness that has simply has nothing to do with your circumstances because you and I would define happiness as if good things are happening, right? Like, I'm ha- you know when I'm most happy? Payday. Hello, anybody else? When I got that paycheck, I feel invincible. I'm like, babe, we got money. Let's go. She's like, by the way, we got bills. We ain't going nowhere. You know, I'm like, oh, man. Because the human world is we spend it before we got it. And so, like, happiness for a lot of us is dependent on our circumstances or happenings. And Jesus is saying, actually, there's some people in the world, my people, my kingdom, works differently with happiness. And he gives us these nine um, really happiness things. I'm going to give you seven of them. I couldn't give you all nine because we'd be here until, you know, this afternoon. And I'm sure the Cowboys are playing soon. And you just, we got to pray for them, right? So we, we got to spend all the time to pray. We need to pray for the, you know, for Dak not to throw it in. Never mind. Okay, let's, number one, I ain't even a Cowboy fan either because I laugh every time. Anyway, so number one, my wife is. It's okay. You can stay here. My wife, she loves the Cowboys. We're praying for her. Happy people. All right. Um, Seven keys to happiness, okay? I'm going to give you seven keys. Here's the goal today. Here's the goal. I don't want to overwhelm you. Seven keys. The goal is not to do every one of these today, okay? The goal is to take a step. Everybody say step. So I'm going to ask you, you need to ask the Lord, identify what's the one thing you're going to do to make sure you get, you work on your happiness 
root problem, okay? So you're gonna write down a note, so it means you're gonna take out your phone, pretend like you're not looking at Instagram, and then you're gonna type out a note, or you're going to write down on a note, you're gonna take some notes, because you're gonna say, God, here's our prayer today, Lord, give us one step, one step in one area that we can take today. One, I'm gonna give you seven. Number one, seven keys to happiness based on what Jesus said. Number one is this, happy people depend on God instead of themselves. Verse three, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So when we read that, we, when, naturally, when you read poor, you think financial status, right? So some of us have read it, and I've actually heard preachers preach about this, and I'm like, just would you read the Bible? But they, they don't read it right. They think poor in spirit means poor in finances. That's not what he was saying. Poor in spirit back then meant those who are fully dependent on God. Jesus was addressing dependency. And so some of us out here, our own independence, our own strength, or our own ability to like do it yourself, man up, make sure you like woman up. You got to do your own thing. Like I got to live I'm like an independent woman or I'm an independent man. I don't need nobody and I don't need no man and I don't need no woman. I don't need anything. I can do whatever I want. I'm on me. It's up to me if it's going to be and I'm going to do it all. He says, you gotta, you're going to struggle with happiness your whole life because eventually you're going to run into something that you are are not equipped or qualified to handle. Like if you're going to get to your potential, eventually you're going to run into something where you're going to be like, I'm not qualified to do this. When I planted this church, there was no more clear version or vision in my mind, Mr. Mac, of when I planted this church, when I realized I don't know what I'm doing. And the funny thing is, is that the enemy, I think sometimes whispers to everyone, everybody else knows what they're doing and you don't. Can I just tell you from, I'm going my 21st year in ministry and everybody I've ever counseled, you know what the real human condition is? Nobody knows what they're doing. Oh, well, maybe somebody, no, no one knows what they're doing. If you look at your own life and you think, I got what it takes, eventually life will show you you don't. And even translations of the Bible show us this. You can actually see what he was really saying. The, the NLT version says, God blesses those who realize their need for him. The GW version means, says, who, those blessed are those who recognize they are spiritually helpless. The CEV version says, blessed are those who only depend on him. Like Jesus was saying, if you think you are all you need to make sure you get to your purpose in life, you're sorely mistaken. And the happiest people in the world are those who recognize what I can carry and what I can't carry. My son, we were going to, uh, on a trip vacation recently. And I told my boys, we're getting all packed up. We had all our suitcases and everything. I said, all right, we're going to all together as a family, we're going to pack up, get our stuff in the car. Because the moment you move past one or two kids, like, I'm just giving you a heads up for those of you who don't have them or you have multiples or whatever. The moment you move past two, it's like, no, it's everybody. Everybody's got to chip in. It just is what it is, you know? And um, so they, they all start grabbing their bags and they throw it in. And, and I had my bag. And so Winston went and he starts to look, my little six-year-old, he... He's a little squidget kid. He walks up. He looks at all the bags. And he sees dad's bag, and he walks up to my bag. Now, my bag is my bag. My bag's heavy. I got a lot of stuff in that bag because I overpack everything. Anybody overpack everywhere you go? I'm like, but what if Antarctica breaks off and we have a winter solstice? Like, I start thinking the worst could happen, so I bring everything. And so my bag's pretty, pretty packed up. So he walks over to my bag, and he does this. Uh, you know, he's, like, trying to yank the bag. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he goes, 
I'm picking up, picking up the bag. I said, no, you, you pick up your bag, dad picks up my bag, and then we go to Disney World together. That's how it works. And some of us in life have walked up to things that you are not actually qualified, called, equipped to carry. And you live your life right now solely dependent on your own strength on carrying something that you're not even supposed to carry. And if you learn to let go of that thing that you are not qualified, not, come on, you're not called, you're not supposed to, like this is an encouraging message, you don't have what it takes. Because if you pick up your bag, if Winston just picks up his bag, it's like a little Spider-Man bag. He can carry that bag. And when he carries that bag, it lets daddy carry his bag. We need to let God carry his bag. Like, you can only do so much in your family. Like, you can only do so much with your finances. You can only do so much. Has anybody ever gotten to the end of yourself and realized there needs to be more? Good. You found the end of yourself. You do what you do. God does what he does. We go to Disney World. That's how it works. But those who get focused on the things that they can't carry, and you start to, oh, I got to pull, and I got to try harder, and I got to strive. There's no but, no part of God's kingdom is where you strive to do something that you're not called to do. And Jesus says, happy are the ones who recognize they are inadequate to face life without God. That's really what he was saying. Come on, that's for somebody in here. Somebody say Amen. High five myself. Number two, happy people recognize that loss is part of life and grieving is good. It's interesting. Jesus would say, blessed, happy are those who mourn. Like, m- m- mourn. Like, even, our, even worldly culture would say, like, happy people aren't mourning people. Like, they're naturally sad. Like, Seems opposite and counterculture. In fact, church world can be even worse with that because like I grew up in churches where if you were having bad days and you came in and they asked you, hey, how are you doing? And you told them you weren't doing good. They would like disqualify you as a Christian. They'd say stuff, well, then just believe God. You must not have enough faith. Like how about my sadness because of my circumstance doesn't necessarily dictate my faith in my God. Like there could be okay where there's a moment. Last time I checked when I read my Bible, Jesus cried when someone died. So like I have an antagonistic spirit towards religious people if you haven't figured it out yet. Because they tend to discount all the ways that they need Jesus. And they say weird things like, well, I don't have to be sad because I know where they are. Like, you can still know where they are and be sad that they're no longer here. Mourning is actually a gift from God that gets you to comfort. And so some of us, man, like, we don't know how to do that. And Jesus is saying happiness is found in navigating sadness well. Like, you have to navigate your sadness. Because if you don't, you tend to repress it or suppress it. Repress it is subconsciously denying it. It's like saying, like, well, I'm going to pretend like it's not there. I'm going to pretend like it's not there. Well, I'm going to pretend like it's not there. And then dumb Christians will walk up to you and say, well, if you, do, you just pretend like it's not there. Believe God. Act like you're good. Like, that's, not, that's nothing Christian about that. 
And then if you actually like suppress it, where you mean you should like consciously suppress it. Any stuffers in here? When something bad happens, you just push it down. I don't want to feel it. I don't want it. Come on. Can anybody? Okay. Yeah. So we got, so like when you suppress it, eventually that's unhealthy because eventually it'll come out in unhealthy ways. The reason you have to express it and confess it, the reason we mourn is because it allows us to express it and confess it in healthy ways. If I don't let it out in healthy ways, it always comes out in unhealthy ways. Now, this is nobody in here, but I'm sure you know a family member who was going through something and you simply bumped them into the shoulder and they lost it, right? And it had nothing to do with you. Well, why? Because they were pushing it down so much to where they couldn't push it anymore and it exploded onto you and they had emotional vomit all over you, right? Right? Because if you don't get it out in healthy ways, it will always come out in unhealthy ways. And Jesus knew that. He said, happy people know how to be sad well. I like what the writer of Psalms said. He said, I was silent and I held my peace to no avail. He goes, I, saw, I held it down. I repressed it and I suppressed it. And he said, my distress only grew worse. And he, Jesus was saying, that's not how we do it in the kingdom. In my kingdom, we mourn well. We learn how to be sad. We learn how to cry. We learn how to let, like, let us feel, one of the number one things I get asked as a pastor, when something bad happens, somebody dies, somebody passes away, something terrible, accident, something. One of the number one things I ask is, pastor, how should I feel? How should I feel? I get asked that a lot. And I said, how do you feel? And they'll explain to me how they feel. And I say, like that. How you feel is appropriate. I feel differently when things happen to me and you feel differently when things happen to you. How you feel is appropriate. We just don't make lifelong decisions based on our feelings. We don't feel alone. Like we don't feel it without somebody coming in going, hey man, I'm so sorry. And those of you who see somebody who is feeling it in the moment, who is mourning, please do me a favor as a Christian and as a pastor and do not open up the Bible and give them Bible verses while they're trying to mourn. You think you're helping, you're just making it worse. When most people, you know what they need? I'm just giving it to you. Can I give it to you straight? Is this okay? As a pastor who actually has to deal with people who have those who pass away, you know what the best thing you can do for them is not quote them the New Testament to actually walk up to them and give them a hug and cry with them. That's what you could do. Stop making them feel bad that they feel sad for loss. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed to navigate sadness well. Number three is this. Happy people find the strength to be gentle. They have a, find the strength to be gentle. Because like when I said that, you were like, well, there's no strength in being gentle. That's the opposite of being gentle. If you're gentle, you're not strong. That's not true. Jesus says it. Blessed are the meek. Everybody say meek. Meek's a Greek word there. It's called, uh, it's actually was praus. It meant to be gentle. Um, you see this a lot um, with how they would uh, like work with wild horses. It was, it, was, it was fascinating. It was what they would do is they would say, if, it, uh, if you took a wild horse and you tamed the wild horse, they would call that in their culture a praus horse, which was a gentle horse, right? Based on the Greek word and the definition. The reason it was praus was because um, it was now being able to be used by the, the master. I like what it says. I actually wrote this down from a history book I read is that praus used to refer to a wild stallion that had been tamed. A strong and unbridled horse often killed people quickly. But if they were able to bring a stallion under control, it could now be used by the master. 
that'll preach all day long. Because what we see in meekness is we think it's weakness. It's not. You think to be gentle, you have to give up your strength. A prowess horse, a gentle horse, was no less strong than a wild horse. He was just brought under control so that he could now be used by the master. And there are a lot of people who assert their dominance and their strength in the name of people, in the name of culture, in the name of everything, to be a man, quote, be whatever, to be a strong woman. Like, you think you have to assert your dominance to be strong. And God is saying, Jesus is saying, my kingdom, gentle people are strong because they're no less strong than those who act crazy in the world. They're just under the control of their own self. They found some self-control. So now the master, hello, God can use them in what they need to be used and actually use their strength for good. I, I, um, I like what one theologian said. He said, for the meek, the, the earth is not a stage for self-assertion and the graspings of desires, but an inheritance which they received from their father. What does it say about the meek? The meek, the gentle, they inherit the earth. Meek people don't work for their blessing. They work from their blessing. They already know they got it. They already got a dad. They already got a family. I already got an inheritance. I'm not working for the world. I already got it. So I don't have to grasp. I don't have to fight. I don't have to assert my dominance. I don't have to pretend like I got to be a man. I, the other, um, I, I see a lot of this with guys. I try to help them a lot. And I struggle with this too. I don't, think, I don't know if it's a guy thing or not. But like for men with their children, we've heard and felt maybe such a weird, odd version of masculinity that is not biblical and really not godly. And it's, it's formed in the face. Like the whole idea of toxic masculinity has been hijacked by like weird culture. Like they don't even know what it is. They think it is what it is. What it's, what, at the end of the day, if your son, because I'll, I'll see it. Like I've seen a guy, like where his son fell, scraped his knees bleeding, right? It's a superficial wound. It's, it's a scratch. It's bleeding. His son is crying. And yet, instead of walking up to him and doing the meek man of God thing, which would be, let me get on your level. Let me cry with you. Let me hold you. Let me help you. Let, me be, let you be okay being a kid. We think, I got to teach him to be a man right now. So stop crying. Stop crying. And we've all seen it, right? Stop crying. Like, don't cry. Don't act like that hurts. Stop being like that. And you think your gentleness in the moment is somehow going to keep him from being a man. I don't want you to teach. God doesn't want you to teach your kid to be a man. Come on. Come on. God wants you to teach your kid to be a man of God. Right. That's different. So if you want to continue in the weird ways that you want to raise your kid and be closed off and be a stone cold person, I, I pastor a ton of people. You're just giving me job to security because I got a whole lot of guys who walk up to me and say, I wish my dad would just have cried with me. I wish my dad would have hugged me and told me he loved me. They never ever walk up to me and say, I wish my dad would have been harder and showed me how much stronger he was of me. But you and I equate strength as that. So I know I'm talking to the dudes right now and we should feel some conviction because you're not supposed to teach them not to feel things. You're not supposed to be somebody who's not gentle. I'm not saying you can't have some strength. I'm not saying you can't teach him how to be a man and man up at certain times. But when he's a kid, come on, come on. Yes. let him be a kid. Yeah. Learn how to be gentle with them. You'll be surprised how much more of a man he is once you learn how to cry with your son. I struggle with that. I struggle with that. I wish I was better at that. 
I want to be used by the master. I want to be used by the master. I want my strength to be under control. I want to show my son what it's like to be not a man, a man of God. Number four is this. Happy people cultivate an appetite for the things of God. I like what he says, blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be, they will be filled. Jesus taught a really unique principle. He taught the hunger principle. Y'all know it? I hunger after what I eat. I hunger after what I eat. So here, um, has anybody ever done this recently? And uh, I thought it was kind of unique. The other day I was driving home and I just got a hankering. Anybody use that word hankering anymore? <laughs> we use that? Is that a, I don't know if that's socially acceptable anymore. You never know. You know, I get emails all the time. Well, you're not supposed to use that word. I'm like, well, then there's a lot of other churches. So, you know, it's like, um, so like hankering. So I got a feeling. I wanted a desire for some McDonald's French fries. How many of y'all like some McDonald's? For, y'all can sh- tell, tell the truth, shame the devil up in here. Okay, good. I'm pretty sure they put stuff in it that makes you come back. But like the other day I was driving home from the office and I was like, man, I don't know what it is, but I want me some McDonald's. Anybody call it McDonald's? McDonald's. I want some McDonald's French fry. So I got to the drive-thru and ordered me up a McDonald's French fry. Sure, I got a 20-piece chicken nugget. <laughs> and, uh, you know, chased that with a quarter pounder. It was powerful. <laughs> and uh, so I got the meal, and I, it was sitting in my, my, my passenger seat. And then y'all know, what it's, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? The Holy Spirit started to speak to me. <laughs> and, uh, and I did what you and I do. Y'all know what you do? So we just, we, the, it's amazing to me how McDonald's has them fries in this little carrier and they just shoot up at you. As if to say, you, you can have just one, right? <laughs> right? And so I do what you do. I do, the, I do the pre-meal snack. I reach over into the bag and I grab just one. And I pull it out and it's piping hot. And it's got salt all over it. And I remember sitting at the drive. I was sitting at a stoplight, and I pulled it out, and I looked at it, and I said, and I did the slow motion. Y'all know the, (laughs) you record, do y'all know sometimes when you eat something, you close your eyes? I didn't know that. I'd close my eyes, and I'd put it in my mouth, and I just, I was like, oh. And I just smile, like when you, I eat, I smile when I eat. I love food that much. And I was smiling and it tasted so good. The salt and the chemicals mixed with yellow number nine was just powerful, man. I'm telling you, it was sitting well in my soul. And I realized though, you know what I realized? I, 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 I was done eating that one fry. And one became two, two became eight, eight became 15. Before you know it, I got home and they no more fries there, right? And what, it, what I learned, that's what, you know what that is? That's the hunger principle. Because once I got it in my spirit and I got the taste of it, I wanted some more. I wanted some more. The Bible is really boring if you never read it. 
Like prayer is the gigantic waste of time if you never pray. Somebody might clip that and be like, local pastor says prayer is a gigantic waste of time if you never pray. I've had people come to church and they're like, yeah, church is cool. How much you go? Christmas and Easter. I'm a devout Christian. Oh, okay. Church is kind of meh. You come every once in a while. How are you ever going to develop an appetite for the things of God if you don't ever eat the things of God? So Jesus was like, Jesus goes, he said, this is funny. He goes, you'll be filled. The word filled there was cortazo. It actually meant to be fully satisfied. He said, you'll be so satisfied if you just learn how to eat the things of God. If you learn how to pray regularly and learn how to. It's amazing to me how holy we all are on December 31st. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That's when we're saying, what do you do? You're making your New Year's what? And you always have like a spiritual one. You're like, all right, God, I'm going to start praying every day. And so January 1st comes along and you, you get up and get your Bible and your coffee. And you're like, all right, God. And 30 seconds later, you're like, what else is there to talk about? Anybody else other than me, than their pastor of this church? I get convicted every, every January 31st. I'm like, I'm going to be a better Christian, God. And then December 31st. And then January 1st, I'm like, this is really hard. You got to get through the hard part. So that it eventually becomes a part of your appetite. And, and, and Jesus was saying, really happy people, man, they, they never fill up on the wrong thing so they can fill up on the right thing. Smile. <laughs> Sermon on happiness. All right. Happy people. Number five, happy people choose mercy over judgment. Okay. I, if I haven't offended you yet, just, I'm going to land the plane of offense right now. Jesus said, happy or blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Jesus says, um, you have to realize that everything in your life when it comes to God, you desperately want for him, but you really want it for others. Because what you tend to give others, you will be given back to you. He says the reason they're so happy is because they hand out mercy like candy. Because they know that they need it really badly. So they set this precedence of just, man, mercy, mercy, mercy. And we, we confuse grace and mercy all the time. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. It's like salvation and Jesus coming, giving life. life. By the way, salvation is grace. It's the grace of God. We talk about the grace of God. It's getting you something you did not deserve. You didn't earn it. You didn't make it happen. It had nothing to do with you. Jesus died. It cost you nothing. It cost Jesus everything. He handed you something you don't even deserve. Eternal life. That's grace. It's grace of God. But mercy's not that. Mercy's not grace. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Because if you were to look at your life right now, you do a whole lot of stuff that's ain't right. You do. You know what it is. You don't have to think about it. You have to close your eyes. Like Close your eyes and think about the things you know you do right now. You need to stop doing. You already know. And the funny thing is, is that you don't get the consequence of those things. You out there yelling at the person who cut you off right after you cut off five people behind you. Yeah. 
And Jesus said, happy people are super happy in my kingdom because they just walk around with mercy, walk around with mercy. I love the story about Napoleon and a mom that came with mercy. He said, a mother once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. He replied, that young man had committed a serious offense twice and justice demanded death, mom, sorry. And she said, but I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. Napoleon said, well, look, your son does not deserve mercy. And she said, sir, I'm sorry, it wouldn't be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I asked for. And it took Napoleon by surprise. He said, then mercy is what he gets. And followers of Jesus tend to forget that the people who need mercy most is you. We like to separate ourselves, don't we? Well, my sin's not that sin. Last time I checked, the Bible said sin was sin. Sure, it has different consequences based on what it is. But under God, it's sin. And you need mercy like they need mercy. So the next time you're ready to hand out justice, it's not that God's not a just God. And it's not that God doesn't have justice. It's that God, in his kingdom, God hands out the justice. We hand out the mercy. Y'all see how it works? In the, in the world's kingdom, you hand out the justice, and then God's supposed to hand out the mercy. No, no, no. He already did that with Jesus. In his kingdom, he's saying, you got to be my followers. You hand out mercy. I got the justice. I'm better at it than you are. And at some point, you're all going to need it in your life. Number six, number six. Happy are people who live with integrity. I like what he says, blessed or happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The pure in heart, pure there was katharos, meant clean, clear, or unmixed. See, what he's really saying, Jesus is saying, hey, are you somebody who does what you say and says what you do? Come on. Like, are you somebody who's actually unmixed and clear? You do what you say. You're a man of your word. You're a woman of your word. You are who you are in front of people that you are behind people. Come on. Like, in the private, you are in the public. You're the same person. You are the same. You are pure. You're a person of integrity. And integrity will always lead us to seeing God better. I like what Proverbs chapter 11, 20 says. It says, the Lord detests people with crooked hearts, but he delights in those with integrity. Has anybody in here ever said, I don't feel God right now? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Raise your hand like me. Like me. Like me. Come on. Y'all have to, come on, y'all have to, come on, yeah, 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 okay, okay, so here, here's the thing, if you don't feel God, you should ask this question regularly, what in my life am I not, do I not have integrity with? Where are you duplicitous? Where are you, could I use the church word, hypocritical, which means you, 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 you play a version of yourself in front of people and you are so different behind the scenes. And I'm not even saying like, it's little things. It shouldn't be just about like, whether you know, you say you're a Christian, you don't act like a Christian. How about you pretend like you're nice and then the moment you get crossed, you're like the meanest person you'll ever find in life. You, you, you tell everybody you're generous, but the moment you have an opportunity to be generous, you disappear when the bill shows up. So if you don't feel God, remember God says he delights with those who have integrity and our purity, our integrity will always draw closer, draw us closer to him so that we can feel him. You have to ask yourself that question, where in your life do you lack integrity? Because blessed, happy are those who live with integrity because they'll see God. They'll feel him. Last one is this and I'm done. I'm closing. Happy people choose to make peace and not war. He chooses to make peace 
and not war. I like what it says in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Um, Jesus was addressing the idea of peacemaking because we get it misunderstood a lot. Two common ones I see a lot. Um, the first one is they think peacemake, peacemaking is avoiding. It's not avoiding. Peacemaking is not peacekeeping. So, like, we have some peacekeepers in here. Some personalities are driven like that, where you walk into a room and you see tension and you're like, oh. Everybody, calm down. It's okay. I'll make cookies. You want to make cookies? What's going on? It's okay. She didn't mean that. Everything's okay. Let's not fight. I don't want to have an argument. No, 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 no. Let's And you're like, I'm a, peacekeep- I'm a peacekeeper. That's what Jesus said. No, Jesus said peacemaker. They're not people who avoid things at all. Jesus started trouble all the time. All the time. Go read it. Go read his life. He was like a troublemaker. Everywhere he went, there was like drama, drama, drama. He said that. He did what? Are they mad about it? Oh, let's go watch it. Like you can walk around, find Jesus. You would definitely be watching something fun. He just liked to do it. He rocked the boat all the time. He caused problems. He made issues all in the name of peace. Jesus never avoided anything. Second thing it's not is it's not appeasing. Peacemaking is not giving in. A lot of times we think peacemaking is like, okay, I'm just going to back off and, okay, your truth is not my truth. Can I say that? Well, your way is not my way. I'm just going to let that. Sorry, Jesus never backed off a legitimate issue in his life. Not once. Never backed off. He never backed down. He confronted injustice. He confronted offense. He confronted abuse. He confronted culture nonstop. He he, he was constantly not giving in. Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker. And honestly, it's what got him killed. It's because he walked around and said, you guys got it wrong. And let me tell you why. This is what peace looks like in my kingdom. It's me standing up for the widow and the orphan. The people that you walk by every day on the street. The people that you think don't deserve my grace and my justice, my mercy. Those people, quote, those people, and you all have them. Some of y'all are like, some of your those people are, you know, people from California. Some of those people are people who root for the Redskins instead of the Dallas Cowboys. Some people are, those people are the people who don't root for the Spurs. Some people who are those people who don't go to church. Some people are those who don't believe in the Jesus that you believe in. Some of the people who don't have the same belief systems and some things. Jesus said, wait, wait, peacekeeping is not peacemaking. Peacemaking is not giving in. No, no, no. We're peacemakers so that we're going to do the best we can to confront every issue that is not biblical and not of me. My kingdom is full of people who go to bat for the things that are right. And when I say right, this is what I mean by right, what's in here. I'm grateful for your belief system. Thank God for your, your, your view on, on everything from culture to sexuality to marriage to parenting to life. To, I, I'm great. Thank you for your opinion. This is right. This is right. It was here before you were. It'll be here be- after you were. Like, Jesus was a peace 
maker. And he walked into things and he told people the truth and it's what got him killed. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, is where are you a peacemaker in your life? Is if you want happiness, he says happy people, man. They, they walk around and they, they are looking to make peace. Shalom. For everybody that they've touched and everybody that they see. Are you a peacemaker? Or do you do a perverted version of what peace is and what he taught? And my prayer that God would have given you maybe one, one step today, one single step that shows you where you need to take a step, where you need to walk in truth, where you need to walk in hope and peace and love and kindness, where you need to actually work on this part of your peace. If you're struggling in here, I, my heart is open to you as a pastor, but my hope would be that you would caught something today that could help you get out of that sadness, that depression, that anxiety, that fear that you're struggling with. God can reach you, he can meet you, but you gotta, you gotta take a step. And my prayer is that one of them spoke to you today. Let's pray. Father, we love you, God. Lord, I thank you that today you're a good God who loves his kids. And I'm so grateful that ultimately I don't know anything but what you teach us. I'm committed to live my life as a follower of Jesus, as a Bible-believing follower of Jesus, as a Bible teacher, as a Bible follower, not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Christian. And so I've been convicted by every single one of these steps as I preached it. As I put these messages together, I'm like, God, I need to work on that. God, I need to work on that. God, I need to work on that. I thank you for the Holy Spirit that he convicts us where he needs to. And I pray right now that our people would take their step. You would make it so clear to them they know what to do as they walk out of here in Jesus' name.